As you're being seated, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. As I mentioned last week, during the Advent season, we're going to take a break from Matthew. We're going to look at Isaiah chapters 7 through 12, commonly called the book of Emmanuel, because in it are many familiar passages of the promise of the child that would come to deliver God's people. This morning, though, I'll be looking at all of Isaiah chapter 7. I'll just for now read verses 3 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Sheerjashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. I have a teenage daughter who loves horses, which means that over the years I've learned more about horses than I ever expected to. And and one of the saddest things we came across in some of the novels and storybooks that we would read about horses was, was the way that horses will sometimes react to a barn fire. Even after being brought and led out of the barn and set loose in the field so they can get away from the fire, horses will sometimes turn around and go back into the burning barn to the stable where they feel secure and safe. And the whole barn burns around them and they refuse to be rescued. We may hear that and think that the horses are so foolish. Don't they see and understand the danger? Don't they understand that safety is that way and and the people are trying to lead them to safety and to rescue? But let's not be so quick to judge horses because we can be prone to the same behavior. We may perceive the danger we're in as the world burns around us and our lives feel like they fall apart at times. But rather than accept the rescue that God offers, we seek to soothe our souls with every manner of false comfort and false rescue. When you're fearful, where do you turn for peace? When you're in despair, where do you find comfort? 
When you're confused, where do you seek answers? Now here in church on Sunday morning, you know the right answer. I look to God, I pray, I read His Word. But seriously, where do you turn when you're stressed? Where do you go when you're upset? You go to Amazon.com, buy something to distract you, make you feel good for a while, something sweet to eat from your favorite place. You get on the boat, find some solitude out on the waters. You seek the comfort of like-minded people online who will only support you and agree with you. We tend to reject the rescue that God offers. And when we do so, we only find destruction. But even then, God gives us the promise of salvation. The first thing we see and learn from this story of Ahaz and Isaiah is that we live in need of rescue. We live in need of rescue. Now, I'm sure that none of you came here expecting or hoping for an education in the history of the ancient Near East and the geopolitics of that day, but you're going to get it. Because if we're to understand anything that Isaiah is saying in these verses, and if we're to understand why Matthew pulls from this story to quote the prophecy of Emmanuel for Jesus... And if we're to understand why we even just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. If we're to understand those things, we have to know what was going on in the world that led to the prophecies of Isaiah in this day. First thing you need to know is that Isaiah was a prophet who mostly ministered and and prophesied in the southern kingdom of Israel, which was called Judah. And that was in about the late 8th century before Christ. 200 years earlier, before Isaiah, the the kingdom of Israel, which had been under King David and then King Solomon, had fractured and split into two separate nations, Judah in the south, and David's descendants still reigned as the true kings of Israel, but in Judah, not Israel. And the northern kingdoms, the northern tribes were called either Israel or Ephraim. And you're going to see both of those in our story today. So don't get confused. Two, Two words for the same nation, Israel and Ephraim in the north, Judah in the south, and the big boys of the day, the superpower that was going around everywhere, stealing up land, conquering nations, exacting tribute, demanding payment, was Assyria. Assyria under its king, Tiglath-Pileser, who was probably just angry because he could never find a keychain or a souvenir cup with his name on it. I mean... Tiglath-Pileser. And so they're kind of the bullies of the day. And they're going around conquering kingdom after kingdom and saying, look, if you just pay us money, everything we ask for, no matter how much it is, you just pay us gold, everything, year after year, we won't destroy you. Well, there were some nations that didn't like that, including Ephraim or Israel and Syria, not Assyria, Syria. I hope you're taking notes. I should have maps up there. Syria And Israel said, no, enough is enough. We don't want to be conquered by another nation. So they formed this alliance. And they said, if we can talk Ahaz over in Judah, maybe Egypt and some other nations to, to form a big rebel alliance, we can stand up to this empire and not have to be bullied around. And so they send word to Ahaz, hey, come join us. We're, we're going to fight against Tiglath-Pileser and, and Assyria. And Ahaz says, ain't no way. I'm not going to get involved in that. They will destroy us. Well, Syria and Ephraim or Israel aren't going to take no for an answer. And so we see in in verse 1 and verse 6 what happens. Rezin, the king of Syria, 
And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but yet could not mount an attack against it. They were saying, let's go up against Judah, terrify it, let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Basically, if you're not going to play with us, we're going to take you off the throne, put our own guy in place, and then we've got three kingdoms in our alliance. If you're Ahaz, what do you do? Well, what he did in 2 Kings 16, we see he sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So he's being attacked. He's in need of rescue. But in his need of rescue, instead of looking to the Lord, he looks to someone else, Assyria. Because if he stands against Assyria, then then Assyria is going to come in and attack him. And if he he resists Assyria and joins the rebel alliance, you know, Assyria will attack. But if he doesn't, if he does join them, sorry, if he doesn't join them, they're coming up to attack him. Either way, he's getting attacked. Either way, he's in trouble. And the message of the Lord through Isaiah has to be heard with that in mind. That's what's going on. He's got this nation and these nations, and he can't make them all happy. Either way, he loses. Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah live in need of rescue. So what, you ask? Thanks for the history lesson, but Assyria doesn't exist anymore. It's long gone. And Stuart, Florida, or wherever you live today, is not under siege from hostile armies. So what does this have to do with us? Well, Matthew, in writing his gospel, famously quotes regarding the birth of Christ, this prophecy in Matthew 1. He says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Matthew says that was to fulfill the prophecy, he didn't mean that Isaiah showed up at Ahaz's doorstep in the middle of a siege, I mean, that's what I, Ahaz is going around checking the water supply because these two nations are coming up to surround him and lay siege. And he's like, I've got to hold out until Assyria comes and rescues me. And so he's digging in for the long haul. And it's not like I, Isaiah showed up and said, hey, by the way, Ahaz, in 735 years, a baby's going to be born called Emmanuel. Hope that helps. You know, just chill out for another 700 years. No, That's not what it means that this happened to fulfill what Isaiah spoke. What what Isaiah said meant something to Ahaz and to the people of his day. It, it, It was real to them. It was a prophecy for them in their day. But as the New Testament writers, and as we often see, very often what God does with his people in the past points to a bigger deliverance. It points to the bigger picture. God's deliverance of his people in Ahaz's day was just meant to be a picture of the deliverance that would come in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus fulfills all the promise and preamble and preface of the earlier times, even as we looked at last time at the Passover. The Passover was fulfilled in Jesus. These things that had a promise, that had a hint, that had a shadow, the fullness comes in Jesus. We are in need of a rescue, not from Assyria, not from Babylon and not from Rome, not from China or Russia or any other nation. What did Matthew 121 say 
was the cause of our need for rescue. He will save His people from what? From their sins. That's why Emmanuel was given. To save God's people from their sins. That's the real danger. You and I need rescue from a threat far worse than any army or nation or war. Jesus warns in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Only one has that authority. God himself. God alone has power and authority to judge your sin with eternal hell. That's your greatest threat. That's the danger you face. That's where your fear should be. We live in danger. Danger of the power of sin that, that captures and controls us to do the things we don't want to do. Danger of the effects of sin, which are devastating in all that it touches. We live in danger of the consequences of sin, which is eternal separation from God. When Ahaz heard about the armies coming against him, we see in chapter 7, verse 2, the house of David, when the house of David was told that Syria was in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They understood the seriousness of that threat and they were in fear of it. When we understand the seriousness of our sin and our standing before God, then what will ultimately come of that, we ought to shake in fear. But instead, what we do, we point fingers and we blame and we make excuses and we look elsewhere. In worship this morning, we, we had a confession of sin like we always do. One of the reasons we do that so regularly it's because though there are many problems in the world and we might be inclined to, to say, no, the problem is them. The problem is there. The problem is that. We need to be reminded each time we come to worship that no, the problem is here. Many of you have probably heard the story of G.K. Chesterton, the Christian author and, and humorist uh, in, in the United Kingdom a hundred or so years ago, uh, participated in an essay contest in a local newspaper. They said, submit an essay answering this question, what's the problem with the world? And essay after essay would come in. The problem is this group, this party, it's nationalism, it's this, it's that, it's religion, it's this, it's that. Long essays arguing why this was the problem with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote back a two-word essay. What is the problem with the world? I am. I am. I could point, I can blame, but really the problem is here. Because the problem in the world, the problems in the world that I see, war, oppression, sin, injustice, racism, you name it, is merely a symptom of sin, and there is sin in me. We confess our sin in worship because we see a broken world. And yet all the things we see that are broken, all the war and injustice and abuse, is just a symptom of the deeper sickness that dwells in us as well. The problem is me. We live in need of rescue. Rescue from ourselves and our sin. The next warning that we see here is that false rescuers will destroy us. On the one hand, Ahaz is looking at this threat, these two nations coming up to threaten him. But where does he turn? He turns to Assyria for help. And Isaiah warns him of what will come of that. 
The question is, where do we turn to deal with our problem? Ahab believed he only had two choices. He could, he could join the rebel alliance or he could join the empire. You know, that, that's the options. And, and Isaiah came and said, no, look, those aren't your choices. Your choices are trust God or don't trust God. If you look to anything else, you're not trusting Him. Anything we look to for rescue other than God will destroy us. And there's two reasons for that that we see in this passage. One, false rescuers will destroy us because of the power they lack. And two, false rescuers will destroy us because of the price they extract. First, they lack the power. After hearing about the plans that Syria and Ephraim have to conquer Judah and its people, God says, in beginning in verse 7, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is just Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is just the son of Remaliah. If you're not firm in your faith, you won't be firm at all. Head, in this context, means source, like the head of a river. Like, what's behind it? Where's its strength coming from? What's behind this great and mighty and fearful nation, Syria? It's just the capital city, Damascus. And what's behind the capital, Damascus? It's just a man named Rezin. What's behind Ephraim? Samaria, its capital. And what's behind Samaria? Son of Remaliah. He's so insignificant, we don't even need to mention his name. Okay? If, if, you are, if your faith is in those things, you're not going to stand firm at all. What's behind all these mighty kingdoms? Just people. People. What's behind the things that you fear? The political parties. The social causes. The material wealth that tells you it has the answers for you. The things that tell you they'll make you feel safe and content. What's behind them? Frail humans who have no power to save. Psalm 146 warns us, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. They lack the power to save. Anything you look to, anything other than God that you look to to give you answers, meaning, comfort, security, it lacks the power to save. But worse than that, they also extract too great a price from us. When Isaiah confronts Ahaz, the king, Ahaz is he's out there preparing for a siege. He's put his trust in Assyria. They're going to come in and they're going to save the day. But what ends up happening, we see in 2 Chronicles 28, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. The one that he had thought would deliver him and give him all the answers ended up afflicting him. Assyria came in and cleaned out the kingdom of Judah, took everything they had, and then demanded more. Demanded more payments, more and more. We expect a rescue, we get destruction. In Isaiah 7, 17, he warns Ahaz that the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The king of Assyria. Look, when Ephraim departed from Judah, 10 of the 12 tribes took off. It was, it was desolation. It was, it, was, it was horrible. It was unthinkable. And Isaiah is saying, this is going to be worse than that because the king of Assyria is going to come in. 
And the rest of the chapter 7 goes on to describe how the land is going to be emptied. He says, Assyria is going to come in. They're going to be like a razor, just shaving off all the hair. Like everybody's just going to be cut down. And, and, and the cows are going to be producing so much milk, and there's not going to be people to drink them. And the land is going to be so filled with thorns because there's going to be nobody to work the land. The very thing that you trusted and hoped in is going to demand too much of you. It not only has no power to save, but its price is too great. It demands your loyalty. It demands your time. It demands your thought life. It demands your obedience. And in the end, it doesn't give what it promises. That purchase that you made that was going to make, that made you feel good maybe for a little bit. It, it, it distracted you. It helped you feel better. It's going to wear out. Soon it's not going to be enough and you're going to have to buy more and buy more and buy more. That person in that relationship, that person who, whose presence in your life boosted your self-esteem for a season, it's not always going to be like that. They're not always going to make you feel good. And then you're going to either start doing anything you can to win their affection back, or you're going to move on to find the next person who's going to make you feel good, and the next, and the next. These things lack the power to save, and they ask too great a price. We know we need a rescue. We don't feel safe. We don't feel whole. But when we reject God's rescue and look to false rescuers, they destroy us. But there is promise in this. There is hope. There is gospel because God's rescue is a gift. In the midst of our need, even as we're trusting in and hoping in other things, God offers a rescue to His people. It's a gift of grace. Ahaz didn't deserve to be rescued by God. He was... A nasty, evil, bad king. Scripture describes some of the horrible things he did. Not only himself, but leading God's people in horrible things. And yet, God did not let His people or this king experience the justice that they deserved. But instead, He goes to that wicked king with this message in verse 4. Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. God's already said, look, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen to you. They're not, these, these two nations aren't going to harm you. That conspiracy is not going to destroy you, and that powerful nation is not going to undo my plan for you. And I want you to be reassured of that. And so verse 11, he says, he makes this amazing offer. Ask, of the Lord, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. He says, look, you can ask for me to prove myself to you any way you want, Ahaz, and I'm going to do it because I want you to see and believe that you don't need to wait for Assyria and you don't need to worry about what's coming up the other direction. Now, just to be clear, I don't want you taking Isaiah 7, verse 11 into your prayer this week and saying, Lord, you've told me to ask a sign for you and so here's, here's what I want. You know, this is not a general command or offer to all of God's people. This is to Ahaz in his day. And Ahaz responds to it in the worst way possible. He puts fake religion over it. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Deuteronomy 6 says don't put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to ask for a sign. What he's trying to do is trying to get out of it. Because if, if he asks for a sign and the Lord does it as he promised to, then Ahaz has to reject Assyria's help as well and actually trust the Lord. He doesn't want to do that. So he doesn't. But behold the grace of God. 
even though Ahaz doesn't deserve the rescue and doesn't want the sign, God gives it anyway. In verse 14, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. We could spend all morning trying to debate and figure out who Emmanuel is in this story. We know it ultimately is about Jesus. But was it Isaiah's son? Was it Ahaz's son? Was it someone else in the royal house? Who was it? We don't know. We don't know and it doesn't matter. The point is, a child would be born and Ahaz would know because the mother of that child would say his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And before that child was old enough to even know right and wrong and good and bad, Syria and Ephraim would be destroyed. And within a year of the prophecy, it happened. Just as Isaiah told They were destroyed. Syria came in, squashed the rebellion. Ahaz and his people did not deserve the rescue from God, and yet God gave them both a sign and a rescue as a gift. He not only does what we can't do for ourselves, rescue us, but He does it when we don't deserve it. And that's the story of the true Emmanuel of Jesus. Matthew quotes this passage and applies it to Jesus because God's people in Matthew's day and in our day don't deserve God's rescue. In Romans 5, we're reminded that God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. God promises that even when we are not with Him, He is still with us. And so Jesus, God in flesh, is God with us. That's the message of Christmas. But what does it mean that God is with us? That's a nice little phrase that we throw around. It sounds cool. You can be with someone who's suffering to comfort them, to reassure them. You can go sit by the hospital bed and be with them. You can go sit in their living room as they're dealing with tragedy and pray for them and be a comfort. And and that's great. Those are things we should be doing. I, I I would love to see us doing those things more. But that's not what this means about God with us. Did Jesus just come in human flesh, born as a baby, to just be here? To just, just be there for you. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be there for you. You know, I'm just gonna, just gonna speak some comforting words for you. And that, that's, that's not what Emmanuel is all about. In Zephaniah 3, the prophet says, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst. God is with us, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's the message of Emmanuel. That's the message of Christmas. God, the mighty one who saves, is here. The enemy's plan is shattered. And as you hear and read at Christmas time and hear this word, Emmanuel, come up. Also, I want you to notice how often you hear in the Christmas story this phrase that was in Zephaniah 3.16, fear not. The angels come to the shepherds and say, fear not. Gabriel comes to Mary and says, fear not. The angel comes to Joseph and says, fear not. It's almost like that's the message of Christmas, isn't it? Fear not because the Lord your God is with you, a mighty one 
to save. He is here to rescue his people. And so, to the people of God today, I speak now to you the same words that were spoken to Ahaz. In times of fear and danger, when when kings and powers would threaten and tempt, the message of Isaiah 7-4 is this. Be careful. Be quiet. Fear not. And don't let your heart be faint. And the reason for that is what Christ has done as God with us. Consider this. There's a scene in a movie that I like. I've shared it before from the pulpit. I'll probably share it again if you stick around long enough because I feel it's very, very appropriate to this idea. In the classic fairy tale movie, Shrek, you have this ogre, Shrek, who is tasked with rescuing a princess who's held captive in a tower under the, the power of a dragon. And Shrek, who's this big green ogre, goes in and he's seeing the bones of all the knights who've tried and failed to rescue the princess before. Because you have to go in and you have to slay the fire-breathing dragon so you can rescue the princess. And things don't go according to plan. And at some point in in this rescue, so-called, we see Shrek and his companion Donkey and Princess Fiona rushing through the castle and you hear the dragon roaring in the background. And Fiona, she's incredulous. She can't believe it. She says, you didn't slay the dragon? And she's right to be outraged. You can't have a rescue if the dragon is still there. There's no rescue until the dragon is dealt with. And that's, you know, Shrek, he says, it's on my to-do list. I'm going to get to it sooner or later. That's, That's not how God has rescued us. Okay, Ahaz was promised a rescue from an enemy that was knocking at the door. It was still very much alive and threatening. But our rescue is different. Our Emmanuel is different. Jesus is our Emmanuel, mighty to save, the Lord our God in our midst, and we don't just look forward to a rescue that's on a to-do list. We look back at a rescue that already took place. The Gospel is not that God can, or God may, or God someday will deliver you. It's on His to-do list. The dragon is slain. Death and its source, sin, have been defeated on the cross. And so your confidence, your confidence today is not that the biggest army is on your side or the strongest wall is built around you. It's not that you have the mightiest God or the most powerful allies and friends, all of which is true. Your confidence is this, that the battle for your soul and for your future was already fought and won 2,000 years ago. The dragon is slain. Your rescue is completed. And nothing that you face today can undo the rescue of God. And so when we say at this church that we are living out the gospel together, that's what I'm talking about. That the gospel is that God has already delivered you. And what you do now is you live a life delivered. You're no longer held captive in the tower. You're no longer bracing for disaster that might be around the corner. You're no longer building emotional or literal walls to protect you. Whatever it is that truly threatens you, whatever it is that you truly had to fear, whatever lack you felt, whatever answers or solace or rescue that you needed, all that's completed. It's done. Those false rescuers that had no power to save and that claimed too high a price from you, Those are gone. 
That's the message of Emmanuel. You don't need those things because your rescue is complete. And so in the coming weeks, as you hear the songs on the radio, you know, as you see the cards that arrive in the mail, as you see the signs on the store, half the time people don't even know what they're putting up there, but you see the word Emmanuel. Remember that. God is with you. Not just to be there, not just to lend a hand, not just so that you're not going through it alone. Emmanuel, the Lord your God, is in your midst, mighty to save. Be reminded of this, that he was born as Emmanuel to rescue you. And he did. It's finished. And that changes everything. Let us pray with thankful hearts. Our gracious God, we could not rescue ourselves, but you had planned our deliverance. And just as Ahaz never sought to be delivered, you planned our rescue without any input from us. You entered into our desperation and you pulled us out and you gave us life and you gave us reason to rejoice. By your Spirit, would you guide us in wisdom how to live out this deep and staggering truth that we are already rescued and that all that we need has been given to us because God is with us. Remind us of these things. Teach us to live them. Fill our hearts with joy because of them. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.